Amen. You may be seated for a moment. I'll give you all a little break. Um, um, also, let, let's quickly pray for PD. PD has these ministers this morning also in Texas. I think it's about 11, 11.45 our time he's going to be ministering. Um, so let's just say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you. We honor you, Lord, and we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, equipped us, Lord, with such a great shepherd, um, under shepherd, Lord, as, as PD, Lord, uh, to be the pastor over this house, Lord. We thank you um, that he, you have given us a person who is dedicated to your work and dedicated to your people. Lord, as he has now traveled to Texas, Lord, and he is ministering to another body, um, another local body, Lord, um, I ask so that you bless him, that you strengthen him, that you give him the words um, that, that come straight from your word, Lord, that he may be a blessing to the people that are there, Lord, and that they may come to know you more than they even know now, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the power that you are giving them in, in this moment, Lord, as he prepares to preach and bring forth the word um, this, this morning in, in, uh, in Dallas, Lord. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. As you turn turn with me to Isaiah fifty two. Isaiah chapter fifty two. Um, we're gonna be starting from verse thirteen, and we're gonna to read to uh, fifty three, verse twelve. When you have it, please stand. <clears throat> Isaiah fifty two, verse thirteen. All right, I'll start reading. And the word of God reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and, that, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people, and they, made his, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. He make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Lord, we thank you and we honor you, Lord. Again, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the sacrifice that was given to us. We thank you, Lord, for the exchange that was, given, that was done between man and Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to choose to give us a sacrifice and to pay for our sins. The offenses that we offended you with, Lord, you paid, Lord, with your only begotten Son, and we thank you. Lord, as I open up your scriptures, Lord, and, and share your word, Lord, let every thought and opinion of Alan that is contrary to your word be thrown out, Lord. Let every word that comes out of my mouth be pure and holy in accordance to your scriptures, Lord. Let you increase that I may decrease, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. So we've been doing the, uh, the cross series, I think, about three weeks now um, as the season of, of, of Resurrection Sunday and today being Palm Sunday, which is when we uh, celebrate the time when uh, Jesus made the triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem. And um, so we've been, we've been dealing with the cross. And as basic as it may sound, as one-on-one as it may sound, the cross is the center of our faith. Um, and we may say it. As a whole, as a, as a whole body, we may say it, we may we may uh, uh, vocalize it, but in function, when you look at the church at large, you see that a lot of churches don't have that truthfully in function at the center of, the, of their faith. Um, a lot of times, we hear a lot of messages that are centered around us, um, that are centered around what we are doing in this life and what we are, you know, are capable of doing in this life, but they are without the cross. Um, I've heard some people in in response to the statement that every sermon should have be cross-centered. Some people have looked at that person bewildered, <laughs> like as if, how can I make every sermon? We can't just talk about the cross. But how many know that the cross talks about everything? So if you're talking about money, you talk about the cross. If you're talking about different issues that we have in our lives, it brings it back to the cross. If you're talking about family issues, it brings it back to the cross. Some of my health issues, it brings it back to the cross. So no matter what we speak about, the cross applies to it. And so that's, that's where we, we, we either get lazy, I would say, or we just don't want to admit the fact that the cross, the bloody cross, the one that is not that great and pretty of a scene, dealt with every single area of our lives. And so every sermon, because we are Christians, which are based on Christ and Christ's sacrifice on the cross, everything that we do should be cross-centered. And so our cross series, this, this um, these past few weeks, and, and I believe it's coming to close uh, th- next week with uh, Resurrection Sunday, has been specially um, centered around the cross and the importance of the cross. Why is the cross so important? What happened on the cross to give us a significance? While these questions may seem basic for some, there may be those of us in here who don't really know the answers and others that need to be reminded. The cross itself is enough. When God instructed Israel to build an altar, he told them not to use any tools on the stones they used because it, was, it would profane it. God doesn't need nor want any addition from man on what he's done already. We are not to add anything to the cross. 
The cross is what the cross is, even as horrible as the scene looks. A lot of times, you know, either the cross is not preached or sometimes we, uh, we, we preach the cross plus something in order to, to decorate it, to make it look more presentable, in order to make it look, uh, um, what's, what's the word, uh, palatable to, our, to our, our taste buds. But the cross itself, by itself, does it all the work. Um, and, and I believe it's Exodus where God has instructed Israel to build an altar. He instructs them, do not build with any stones that has been touched by your tools. He doesn't want man to add anything. The, the way the stone is on the earth, the way he created it is the way he, wanted, he wants to add it to the altar. Because the moment we start putting our tools into it, we start to feel like we have a right to it. That we have a part in the cross. And how, how many know that the cross was God's sovereign choice? Believe me, if it was up for us, we weren't even thinking about being reconciled to the Father. But yet it was his choice and his doing and his work on the cross. Even though it was human hands that nailed him to the cross, it was the divine hand that allowed it to happen. So, the cross. Why do we need the cross? I know it may be one-on-one to some, but we can't assume that everybody fully understands this. And a lot of times, we who feel like we've gone past the one-on-one need to be reminded we serve a holy God, a perfect God, a blameless God, a God who knows no sin. And he created man in the garden and gave him a rule. And we all know, we, most of us would know the story of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden and because of that they were cursed and sin entered the world. And since then we have inherited from Adam the nature of sin. And so now we're put in a place where we owe God but owe him a debt that we cannot pay ourselves. He wants perfection, but we cannot attain to perfection. And he brings in the law of Moses, and the law of Moses was simply here. And if you read the book of Romans, the, the, the law of Moses was here, not because we can attain it, but what we, so that we know what is to be attained. And we know that we missed the mark. And then comes Christ. Christ comes as that mark, as the one that can fulfill that standard to die one for all. And so the cross is not, just like PD has been saying this past two weeks, it's not about the actual cross. You know, he mentioned, you know, some people get the, the necklaces of the cross or the t-shirts, the, 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 the shirts with the cross. But it's not the actual cross, just the cross itself, the wood cross that, that, that is uh, 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 the importance. But it's what occurred on the cross. The sacrificial lamb dying in our place. God designed this. Why would God send his own son to the cross in our place? He did so because he loves us. Why does God love us? The Bible never offers an explanation, and eternity will be too short to find out. We do not deserve it. We did not earn it, and there is nothing in us to warrant his incredible sacrifice. It was a sovereign choice of Almighty God. I don't know about you, but the fact that God made a choice to love me, it frees me up. It's not that he was, he was pressured or he had to, but God in his sovereignty. You know God's sovereignty is that he can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. In his sovereignty, he made the sovereign choice to reconcile me to him. That's love. So on this cross today, the sermon is uh, the cross, the divine exchange. We're going to talk about the exchanges that took place on the cross. Because... Christ took on our nature in order for us to take on his. Amen? So the nature exchange was, was this. We're, today we're going to go through nine exchanges, and I hope that I can get through 
Um, I'm not going to take too long. But uh, the, the, the nature of all nine exchanges, of all the whole exchange is this. All the evil due by justice to us came on Jesus, that all the good due to Jesus because of his sinless obedience might be made available to us. Or more briefly, all the evil came on Jesus that all the good might be made available to us. So all the good that we experience, all the good that we have in our lives is nothing that we deserve. It's all that Jesus deserved, but on that cross, he made exchange and took the evil that is just, just, justifiably ours, took it on himself for us to be, have his good available to us. So anything that happens in your life, any gift that you may have, and James, it says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Nothing good that we receive is because we earned it. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Wages is something that you earn. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little, a little bit. But wages is something that you earn. When you go to work every two weeks or every week that you get paid, is those are the wages that you have earned. So meaning the hours, unless, you know, we talk about honesty and punching in and out at the right times. But, but the wages that, that come on that paycheck are the hours that you work. And so the money that is coming towards you are, is money that is earned. For us, the wages that we earned is death because our, our, our sin has caused us to earn death. But Christ came and stole death from us and replaced it with eternal life in him. Amen. So I'm going to go through nine exchanges that, went, that happened on the cross. I'm going to name them now and then we'll go back and, and, and unpack all of them. Number one, Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Number two, Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Number three, Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Number four, Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Number five, Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Number six, Jesus endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. Number seven, Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Number eight, Jesus endured our rejection that we might enjoy his acceptance. And number nine, our old man died in Jesus that the new man might live in us. So going back to number one, Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Oh, we should be already on Isaiah 53. Um, verse 5. And it reads, upon, his, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. We can never have peace without the cross. A lot of times we pray for the peace of God, but the cross is what brought us peace with God. Romans 5 says that we were once enemies of God. And so he made a peace offering on that cross with Jesus on it to make peace between us and the Father. Romans 5, 1, if you turn, turn there with me. Romans 5, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have been justified because of the sacrifice. And because of Christ's blood on the cross, we now have peace with the God that we offended. Sin is a serious offense. I think a lot of times we, we tend to, you know, um, as a whole, 
try to you know uh, minimize what really sin is. Sin is offense to the holy and perfect God. On the way here, I, you know, I'll be transparent. You know, I was speeding just a little bit, but when I saw a state trooper, I slowed down. Why? Because I understood the authority of the state trooper, and I did not want to offend the authority because I knew there would be repercussions because of that. Like, you know, if I were, you know, if there was a little rent a cop or auxiliary cop, I probably would have, you know, kept my, my foot on the pedal because that authority is smaller than that of the state trooper. When the state trooper, the yellow and the blue stripe comes on that, on that, uh, on, on that, on that truck, or now they have the, the, uh, the black impalas, they, they catch you on that one. But because I know it's a state trooper and I know that that repercussion is worse than that auxiliary cop, I'm going to make sure I slow down and make sure I don't get a ticket from them. So as the height of the authority of the person that is being violated increases, the violation or the, or the repercussions of the violation increases. So if I'm afraid or not say afraid, I'm not afraid, I ain't afraid of nobody, but <laughs> if I'm respectable of the authority and understand that the violation against that authority of the state trooper is large, how much more so the violation against the holy and perfect God? Because remember, the state trooper won't be anything except for the God that created him to be. So if I'm, if I'm respectable of not violating his law, how much more should I be respectable and understand the repercussions of violating the law of the God who governs this whole universe? So we need peace. We needed peace with God because we had offended him. We inherited the offense and we offend even in our own lives. When Adam sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we inherited the, the offense that they offended him with. And even through that, we offended in our lives. We can never say that we are only simply offensive because of what Adam did, because we can all account for something that we've done in our lives that has offended God. And if you say that you haven't offended God, you just lied and offended God. So we've all done something in offense to God. And so there's a violation and there is a repercussion to our violation. And thanks be to God that Christ took on that violation and the repercussions of that on the cross. So Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven for our offenses to God. Isaiah 1 verse 2. We see a picture of that rebellion, the, the, the result of that rebellion and how it physically even looked on, um, on Christ. Isaiah 1 verse 2. We're going to go two in in verses five and six. Uh, God is talking about, about uh, Israel and how they have rebelled. And listen to how he describes it, and then I'll bring you to the parallel. He goes, Isaiah 1 verse 2 says, Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Jump down to 5 and 6. It says, Why will you be st still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the feet, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Let's go to 52, verse 13 and 14. 52, verse 13 and 14 reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, speaking of Christ. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So in Isaiah 1 chapter, you see God describing the rebellion of Israel as one of a body filled with, with uh, bruises and sores. And Isaiah 52 gives you a picture of Christ on the cross, so bruised and so sore that he is marred beyond resemblance of hu human resemblance. 
So even physically, you can see that Jesus took on the rebellion that we incurred on the cross. So Jesus was punished on the cross that we might be forgiven. Number two, the second exchange that happened on the cross is Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Isaiah 53 again. We're going to be bouncing in the scripture a lot um, this morning. Isaiah 53 um, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And some translation says, by his stripes we are healed. In this translation it says griefs and sorrows, but in the Hebrew literal terms it says sicknesses and pain. So Jesus took on our physical sicknesses and pain on the cross that we might be healed. This is dealing with the physical healing, not simply a spiritual healing. Matthew 8, verse 16. If you turn with me, we're going to be doing a lot of bouncing back and forth just to be just to keep, get you guys ready. Matthew 8, verse 16. We look at the ministry of Christ when Christ was on the earth. And it says that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. So we see here that healing and the deliverance of evil spirits in Jesus ministry went hand in hand. You know, there's a lot of people that don't believe in, in that we are, are, are even saved in physical sickness. Not to say that we never get sick, but we have healing in, through, the, through the sacrifice of Christ. Amen? And so we see here that healing wasn't just a once, a, you know, once in a while thing, but that healing went hand in hand with the deliverance of, 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 uh, of, of spirits in the ministry of Jesus. And it was saying that um, in verse 17, hold on one second. And it is, so it described his ministry in, in, uh, in verse 16, but look at 17 and see why he healed. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our disease. So Matthew is explicitly telling you that this ministry of healing was so that he fulfilled the prophecy that we just read in Isaiah 53. So meaning Christ healing the sick is part of the mission of why he came to die on the cross. So in your sickness, in, 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 in the times of bad health, remember that Christ died in order to give you healing. So we can trust in him for that healing. Amen? Amen. First Peter two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, we'll go there real quick. As First Peter in Isaiah in prophecy, looking forward, uh, says, by his stripes we were healed. And First Peter verse, uh, two, verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24, says, by his stripes we were healed, meaning it has been done. Is dealt with and is a done deal that healing has been provided for us through the sacrifice on the cross. Amen? So we see first that Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Uh, number two was Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Number three, the third exchange that happened on the cross was that Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We see here that Christ was the guilt offering for us. In the, in, in the Old Testament, there was, uh, the sacrifice would be that if one man sinned on the day of atonement, there was one day a year, they would bring a goat or, or a sheep. And so the, man, the person who was sinned would bring it to the, the, uh, the, the temple 
and would put his hand on and his head on the head of the goat in a in a symbolism of transferring his sin onto the onto the goat and then sacrifice the goat. But how many know? And in the book of Hebrews, talk about it that those sheep and the goats and those sacrifices didn't take away sin. I remember I used to think that and think that the cross, you know, um, in the Old Testament, the bulls and the goats that were sacrificed took away sin temporarily, but they didn't take away sin at all. But they symbolized what was to come, which was Christ on the cross. In Hebrews, it says it multiple times that when Christ came on the cross, he dealt with sin once and for all. See, on the Day of Atonement, whether you sinned or not, I mean, sure, of course did you sin, but the Day of Atonement was a set date. So whether you did sin or not, it had to happen. Why? Because it was never really a cleansing of sin. So whether you had sin or not per se, it still had to be done because the very thing that was really dealing with sin had not come yet, which was Christ. And so Christ took on sinfulness so that we could take on his righteousness. We have to differentiate also that what we're talking about, when we're talking about sin versus sins. And there's a very big difference. It's not about a singular versus a plural, but sins is the symptoms of sin. Uh, an illustration I, I usually use is if you have a cold, in 2016 even now, still, we don't have a cure for the common cold. I don't know if anybody here is in the medical field can back me up. There is no cure for the common cold, but the Sudafed, the Robitussin, and, and, and uh, all the medicine that we're taking are suppressing the symptoms of the cold. Are you with me? So when, when we take the medicine, it doesn't mean that now we can drink out of the same cup and you're good. I'm still sick. So it just means that I don't sneeze as often, I don't cough as often, but yet I still have a sickness to be dealt with in here. So the, 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 the symptoms have been dealt with, but the sickness is still there. In the same way, when sins, you know, when we stop the lying, we stop the cheating, even though we've stopped those things, if we have not dealt with the nature of sin, we're still on the wrong path. Because we still had the sickness, although the symptoms have been suppressed. And so Christ didn't come to just deal with the symptoms. He's not just a, a, a surface uh, a sacrifice, but he came to go deal with it at the core. Um, in Matthew 3, verse 10, I believe, John the Baptist says that the, the axe goes at the roots. And I'll, I'll quote that later on because it goes with another point. But that the, the gospel has come to deal with the roots of the issue, not just to cut off the branches. If we have a problem with, 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 a, with a tree, you know, maybe you've, you've had an experience where a tree may be hitting at, at, the, at the, the window if you cut off the branches, guess what? After a season, those branches will grow again. But if you want to really deal with it once and for all, you cut that tree at the root. Not even at the stump, but at the root. So Christ came not to deal with our surface issues, with our surface to make us lie less or to make us uh, 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 fornicate less or to make us sin, sin as in the, the actions less, but he came to deal with the very nature of sin. So Christ came to be our guilt offering. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Turn with me there. Sixty-one verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's one thing for Christ to come and save us from our sin. But he doesn't just leave us there. He then clothes us with his righteousness. I, 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 it's one thing to save somebody out the fire. Get them out the way that they are. And you leave them and go. But you say, bring them out of the fire and you bring them clothes in order to clothe them. That doesn't have to be done, but yet he still do it. He still did it. 
So not only has Christ come to save us from sin and take us out of the place of sin, take us out of the place where we offended God, but he has robed us not with just any righteousness, but his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, um, For he who knew no sin became sin so that we may know the righteousness of God. The way I like to put it is that he who knew no sin became sin so that we who, know no, who knew no righteousness may become righteous. Righteous meaning that we are right before God. That's amazing that we have the righteousness of the son of God, the blameless, the spotless, the sinless lamb of God. We have his righteousness. So meaning when we come before the judge, we don't come with our records and say, "Okay, this is how good I live my life, God, because guess what? At some point there is a stain to our record. But we come with the record of Christ and saying, this is how I'm innocent, because I'm covered by the blood. I remember when the Trayvon Martin, I, I think I've, 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 I've shared this, this illustration before. When the Trayvon Martin case happened, we all probably, I don't think any of us have a criminal justice degree here, but we all knew Zimmerman did it. We all knew. We knew beyond a shadow of a doubt Zimmerman did it. But for some reason, the court case came out that he was innocent. And we all were upset because of the fallible judgment system. But how many know that there will come a time where we will stand before a judge and we are guilty of the charge that is against us, but we will be declared innocent, not because of the fallible justice system, but because of the infallible Christ that died in our place. It's amazing that we can stand there knowing what we've done, but knowing that what he's done has covered it all. So he has saved us from our sin. Wiped our, our slate clean, but has not just left that there, but has replaced our slate with his own. So that now when, when God looks at us, he sees his son because we are covered by the blood of his son. That's, that's, that's amazing to me. First, God has taken away the filthy garments of our sin and clothed us with the garments of salvation. It is wonderful to be clothed with the garment of salvation, but don't stop there. God also wants to cover us with the robe of righteousness. One of the modern versions says he has wrapped us around with a robe of righteousness. You, cannot be, you can be not only saved from sin, but also clothed with the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. We are justified in Christ. Um, sometimes they, they put it as um, justified means just as if I never sinned. To be clean slate, knowing that you are not worthy of it. And then on top of that, from what I said in the beginning, knowing that it was God's sovereign choice to put you in that position. So that's a love that we can never comprehend. It wasn't something that we just cut a deal with somebody on our own and it happened. But the judge, the very judge that we offended, made a way for us to be right before him. That, that's, that's amazing. I know when somebody offends me, I'm waiting for you to make it right. That's in my human nature. If you did me wrong, I'm going to sit around and wait for you to come to me and make it right. But we made, did him wrong. And he went out of his way. To not just pay, but overpay for our offenses. That's amazing. So we are not to, um, the takeaway from, from this point is that we are not to live a life where we feel guilty. It's one thing to be convicted, but it's another thing to feel guilty. I think a lot of us deal with that. We may not speak about it a lot, but we deal with that. We may do something and we live with the guilt of doing that. 
But we have to remember what was done on the cross. The fact that guilt has been taken away from us. We may be convicted. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, but we have a way of repentance. And so we deal with that way of repentance, and guess what? We are free from that sin. Uh, Revelations 12, 12, 10. I know this is a book that probably has dust on a lot of our Bibles. But Revelations 12, verse 10. We see the picture of this. Because Satan likes to accuse us, likes to make us feel guilty because he knows, he can, Satan, here's the thing, Satan cannot undo what was done on the cross. He knows guilt was taken. He knows that we are, we were paid for our sins. But Satan's plan is to, is to, to uh, what's, what's the word, to cover up for, in front of our eyes, to distort what it, what it really means what happens on the, happened on the cross. So he can't change what happened on the cross, but he can change how we view what happened on the cross. You with me? So, Revelation 12, 10. 12, 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So you see that the accuser, which is, which is Satan, has been accusing us day and night. You're with me, right? So verse 11 now says, And they have conquered him, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That is how we conquer the accuser. So when he comes to make you guilty of something, you, you bat, fight back and conquer him by the blood of the lamb that paid for this very thing that he's trying to make you guilty of and by the word of his testimony. So we have to know that we are stand innocent, justified, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Christ has done. So when guilt tries to enter our life, we shut it out. By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Amen? Amen? So we see that Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. And our fourth exchange is that Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Understand that it cost Jesus his life to give us life. I know it sounds basic, but it... it he had to give up his life to give us life. Um, John 10, verse 10, um, it says that, you know, for the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. Jesus, there's a difference between what Jesus gives and what we deserve. I quoted a scripture earlier, Romans 6, verse 23, which is that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So what we deserve is death, but what we are given is life. By nothing that we deserve, by nothing that we've earned. This, 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 this salvation that, we've, that, we've ha that we have is not because we've earned salvation. Believe me, um, Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, um, For it is by grace through faith that we are saved, not by man that we may boast. Because we know if we did it, if we had a, a play in it, if we use, you know, going back to the illustration of the altar that God called Israel to make, if we went and we, we shaved down the stone just a little bit just to make it a little bit smooth, when we pass that altar, we're going to look and we're going to pat ourselves on the back of the work that we've done. But when we take what God has done, the way that it has been done, and, and understand that it's complete the way it is, then we know that we have no part in it. We had no part in the sacrifice on the cross. So we know that Everything that was done was enough, and we receive what he gave, which is, which is life. 
There is enormous difference between what Jesus gives and what we deserve, um, just as the scripture says. Here is a de his deliberate con contrast between wages and a free gift. Wages are what we have earned for what we have done. Receiving them is justice. Anyone who withholds your wages is unjust. We check our hours. We should check our hours on our checks. Because if our hours are not accurate, we're going right to HR and be like, listen, I need you to pay me for the hours that, that, I, that you owe me. So anybody who withholds wages are, is unjust. So here's the, here's the, the here's the, the danger of it. We all we tend to say what we need is justice, but let me tell you today. Let me submit this to you today. Justice would have us in hell. Because if we got what is justifiably ours, it would be death. For the wages of sin, which is what we have, what we are born in, is death. But what we don't what we need what we don't need is justice. But what we do need is mercy. Mercy is what gives us eternal life in Christ Jesus. Even though this is what you deserve, this is what I give you. That's mercy. And uh, I was reading the book, and, and a funny illustration. Um, there was a lady <laughs> that went and took a picture, and the photographer took the picture. And so when she got the pictures, you know, she looked at them, and she went back to the photographer upset, said, these pictures don't do, you, don't do me justice. The photographer looked at her and said, listen, lady, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> Like, we don't understand that when we ask justice, it's what we deserve. So I'm guessing in this illustration, she wasn't that great of a, a looker. But, um, yeah, hey, listen, they ain't saying any names, so I don't feel any uh, remorse selling that story. But, but what we deserve and what the justice that we are, you know, calling for at times, that justice, we don't understand the weight of that justice. And that justice is that we deserve death, but we should instead ask for mercy. And with that, when we understand that, and I even put this in my notes, but it just came to mind. But then we, when we deal with others, we should also think the same way too. Because where we deserve, and, our, and I'm even remembering the parable of the, uh, the, 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 the master and, and the slave that owed him money. And so the slave, uh, I forget where exactly, so I'll just paraphrase it. But um, the, slave, the servant had, had owed this master money. And so the master called him into his chambers and asked him for the money. And he pleaded with the master, hey, listen, I don't have the money. Uh, please, you know, uh, please uh, give me mercy as the master was about to throw him in jail. So the master gave him mercy. So this same servant who, got, um, who, was, who was pardoned for, I think it said like it was equal to a year's wages, walks out of the master's chambers, comes across another servant who owes him the, what is equivalent to a day's wages. And when he asks him for the money, the second, when the first servant asks the second servant for, for the money, and the second servant pleads with him, hey, I don't have the money, please have mercy on me, he goes to have that second servant thrown in jail. When the master hears this, he calls the first servant back into the chambers. He says, how can you who received mercy not give out mercy? And then throws him in jail instead. When we re understand the mercy that we have received, we should be in a position where we understand that we are to give mercy in the same way. So when we understand that we have offended the one, you know, and back to the illustration, the one who is much greater than the state trooper, the one who is, has a supreme authority over the whole universe, and we receive mercy in exchange. Now when somebody does us wrong, we should have the same heart of Christ that instead of giving them justice and what they deserve, because we're not going to lie, a lot of times the things that we want to do, they kind of deserve it, but we give them mercy instead. That's the reality. The reality is not that we're not going to lie and say that sometimes they do deserve an eye for an eye or a two for a two. But guess what? Replace that justice. It's mercy. So we who have received mercy should be in a position to give mercy. 
Jesus died our death that we might share his life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 47. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 47. Let's take a look at um, two names that, that Christ has given and the importance of these. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jump down to 47. It says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. A mistake that I didn't even realize until I read up on it that we make is that we call Christ the second Adam. And we have to understand that there's an importance of him being the last Adam and the second man. Right. So the last Adam, meaning that he took on the full inheritance that Adam inherited in the garden through sin. Not to say that there is no longer any descendants of Adam because we are, like I said, we who are without, those who are without Christ are, are born. Well, we all were born with, the, with, with sin, but Christ died on the cross taking on the full inheritance and the full punishment of what Adam did in the garden. So he became the last Adam and got buried with that inheritance and got buried with the curse and got buried with the punishment. And he came out and resurrected on the third day as the second man, man capital M, meaning that he has now started a new race, the Emmanuel race. Are you with me? So he is the last Adam, not the second Adam. He's the last Adam, meaning he took everything that Adam brought into this world and took it out and got buried and died with it. And when he came back to life, he came back to life starting a new race, the Emmanuel race. And that's what we as believers, the new man is now in, in bodies, is, is part of the Emmanuel race, the one who is like Christ. We are born like Adam, but we are born again like Christ. So, we, so he is the last Adam and the second man. So Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Point number five. I think, oh, I think we, we're making good time. We're making good time. Uh, Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Galatians 3, chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we see here in verse 13 that Christ became the curse. Because curse is every man that is hanged on a tree. So Christ became the curse that we deserve in order that we might receive the blessing. So what is the blessing of Abraham? In Genesis 24 verse 1, it says that Abraham was blessed in everything that he did. So the blessing that we receive applies to every single area of our lives. Galatians 3 verse 1, um, we see here that Paul is addressing Galatians, the Galatians throughout the whole, the whole uh, scripture because the Galatians have deterred their vision and their focus away from the cross and the sacrifice that was done. Galatians 1 verse, uh, 3 verse 1, I'm sorry. It reads, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Again, I, I repeat, as I made the point earlier, that Satan can never undo the work of the cross, but he can keep Christians from realizing what was accomplished there. One, one example of this, and, and I use this, is that in, in the garden after the, the, the fall, when, when God is now cursing the serpent, he tells the serpent that you will strike, talking about the seed of the woman, us shall come and you shall strike his heel and he will crush your head. Now, 
a lot of times we we hear, and I'm not I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong, but let's I just want to kind of get our, our focus and understand really what that means. That's how you know we talk about stomping on the devil's head based off of that. But truthfully, stomping on the devil's head is not our job. Because said that his the seed singular shall come, and you shall bruise his heel, and he shall crush your head. The one who stomped on the devil is Christ on the cross. When he died, taking on our sin and resurrected in power, he crushed the head of the devil. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that Satan cannot undo what was done, but a lot of times he makes us think as if he still has power. But understand that on the cross, it's not something we look forward to. We look forward to now the banishing of Satan, but the power of Satan has already been dealt with. The authority of Satan, I would say, has already been dealt with in the lives of the believers because Christ has already crushed his head. But Satan has a way of, uh, of making us feel as if he still has authority over our lives. So we feel as though we have to go and defeat him again. But that's not our job. He is already defeated. So we have to understand that we have victory in the sacrifice on the cross because he, Jesus was made a curse on the cross so that we may receive the blessing. When Christians lose sight of the cross, and just as the Galatians did, remember that the Galatians were believers that, that uh, Paul is talking to, and when Christians lose sight of the cross, we have a tendency to become legalistic. Now, let me make this little note here. I know there's a lot of talk about religion versus relationship. Um, you know, we had the, the latest album from Kirk, No, no Shots at All, but um, Losing My Religion. Uh, we had the poem a couple years ago, uh, Why I Hate Religion. But the problem is the use of the terms. It's not religion that's a problem. It's legalism that's a problem. The Bible talks about religion. James talks about the religion. This is pure religion to, uh, to, to minister to the, to the widow and the orphan. So religion inherently is not evil, but it's when you take the, the, the doctrines and, and, and the teachings above, just as, just as the Pharisees did, and that was the problem with the Pharisees. Not because they, were, they had religion, it's because they were legalistic with their religion. And so legalism is a more proper term. So I would name the album Losing My Legalism or, or Why I Hate Legalism because that is the issue. It's not religion that's the issue. Uh, I have a friend of mine, because of this, we had a conversation, um, and he's, 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 start, he's starting a, a hashtag, and he's actually, uh, I believe the last time I talked to him, he said he's working on a book called Redeeming Religion. Religion in itself is not the, the problem. Legalism is a problem. And legalism starts when we lose sight of the cross. Legalism is the attempt to achieve righteousness with God by keeping a set of rules which God has disallowed forever. Legalism is also adding any requirement for righteousness to what God has already stated in his word. So now you, we set up these rules like the Pharisees did. And Pharisees, you can see Pharisees always had issues with Christ because they always had these rules and Christ didn't necessarily meant to their rules. And a lot of them, if you, if you, read, if you um, study the history of Israel, they, they had this book called the Talmud. And a lot of those teachings that you see Christ going against are those teachings that they made for themselves in between, um, I would say, between the time of uh, Malachi and Matthew, as far as the, the, the biblical timeline goes. And, and so they held these teachings above the very word of God, above God even himself. So when they saw Christ, because Christ didn't embody the teachings that they, were, they, were, they, had, they had made their idol, they, did, they had a problem with Christ. So, sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, so legalism is also adding any requirement for righteousness to what God has already stated in his word. Remember, we are justified by faith and not works. So we're justified and we receive the sacrifice not because of anything we've done, but because of faith in the one who did it all. Galatians 3 verse 10 real quick. 
um, while we're still there, it said, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So those who are, have taken on this legalism, who are now abiding by these this, 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 uh, works, have now put themselves under a curse because they can't fulfill the law. Again, in Romans and through other epistles that Paul writes, Paul writes that the meaning of the law wasn't because we could attain it, but the meaning of the law was to show us that we can attain it, and then Christ comes in and shows that he's the only one that can. So that we're not to go and now live by the law, we are to live by faith through Christ, the one who fulfilled the law. But the, we have people, we have churches, we have uh, believers who go and put themselves back under the law just as the Galatians did. This is why Paul says, who has bewitched you? You saw Jesus crucified on the cross. You saw that Jesus fulfilled the law. Why have you gone back to go under the law that he fulfilled already? See, y'all with me? So... Remember that we are justified by faith and not by works. When you set out to achieve righteousness with God by keeping a set of laws and then you break any law at any point, you come under the curse. You are obligated to keep the whole law all the time or else it is of no avail to you for righteousness. So we have a tendency in legalism, with legalism, to put ourselves under a curse. But we have to understand that he took on the curse. He became the curse on the cross so that we may receive the blessings. So there's no longer a curse over us because he dealt with it. There's no longer this, 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 this law that we have to, to abide. Not to say that there is no law, period, but the law the, the, that, we, that, that was given to us to attain, knowing that we cannot attain it ourselves, we can now attain it through faith, through Christ. So it's not what we do that saves us. It's about who we believe in that saves us, who has done it already. So Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. The sixth exchange says Jesus endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. A verse 9. And it reads, for you, know that the, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And 9 verse 8 9 verse 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's go real quick to, to eight, go back to 8 verse 9. And it says that, um, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for the, your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's understand something. When we talk about Christ becoming poor, even in uh, the song, uh, Here I Am the Worship, he says, uh, Humbly you came to the earth, um, um, sorry, King of all days, oh so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. Humbly you came to, to the earth you created, all for love's sake became poor. Now we're not talking about Christ during his life. Christ wasn't poor during, during his life. That doesn't mean, I'm not saying that he carried around cash, I'm not saying that he had his bank account high, but when Christ needed something, he was never in lack. I mean, somebody who could feed 5,000, even if it was two fish and five loaves, you don't need anything. So Christ was never poor in his life as he walked the earth. But the poverty that it's speaking about, it happened on the cross. Listen to this. So in Deuteronomy 28, let's take a look and, and, and see this. So poverty, poverty, understand that poverty is a curse. Deuteronomy 28, verse 45, and I'm going to explain what I mean about the poverty on the cross. Deuteronomy 28, 
Deuteronomy 28 is a chapter that, that lists out the blessings of those who obey uh, the word of the Lord and then the curses. And so we see here in 28, verse 45, in the midst of the curses, he says, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Jump down to 47. It says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. These, these verses are depicting what poverty looks like. But think about Christ on the cross. At one point, they were casting lots for his clothes. So, again, you know, we see these, these, these pictures that try to capture the vision, you know, or the, the image of Christ on the cross. But they had taken every garment from him, meaning that he was now naked. He was bloody. He was beaten. And we read earlier that he was marred beyond human resemblance. But look at this, look at what Deuteronomy 28 describes poverty as, and look at what and let's look at what Christ was on the cross. The curse of poverty is this: that he's hungry. It says in 40, going to Deuteronomy uh, 47, it says, uh, 48, I'm sorry. It says, hunger, thirst, nakedness, and lacking everything. Jesus had not eaten for a full day. So he was in hunger. Jesus at one point says that he thirsts. So he was thirsty. Jesus had no clothes on because they had taken the clothes and separated amongst themselves and were casting lots for the clothes. He was naked. And believe me, up on that cross, he lacked everything. And we even go as deep later on to talk about not just material things, but even, even he lacked the presence of his father. So Jesus took on poverty, not while he walked this earth, but took on poverty for us on the cross so that we may have life and life more abundantly. Jesus exhausted the curse of poverty. Jesus wasn't poor before the cross. While he didn't carry around cash per se, yet Christ always had what he needed. But on the cross is where Jesus exhausted the curse of poverty. He was hungry, thirsty, naked, and in need of all things. So now in exchange for that poverty he takes on, we receive abundance. There are three levels of provision, insufficiency, sufficiency, and abundance. God wants his children in abundance. Why? Because in Acts 20 verse 35, uh, Paul, is, Paul is speaking to the people. He says, it is, for it is more blessed to give than to receive. So God give us abundance in order for us to be in a position to give. It's not for us to, you know, get the latest car all the time, get the biggest house on, on the block and get, you know, get all the finest things, finest material things. Matthew, uh, I believe Matthew 9, where Jesus attacks this situation. He says, do not build treasures here on earth where moths can destroy and thieves can come in and steal, but build your treasures up in heaven. So meaning Jesus, he gives us a life more abundantly, but then he tells us, but don't go and store up your treasures here. But our treasures are supposed to be in the lives of people. So we have abundance so that we can give now to other people who are in need. So our abundance is given for us to give. God gives us abundance so that we can receive the blessing in giving. Because there is a blessing in the giving. He says, for it is more blessed to give than to receive. So not only just to give, but there is a blessing in giving that God wants us to experience. Anybody who's been in a position where they be able to bless someone else or give to someone else, you know what I'm talking about. There is, is a blessing to know that you are able to help somebody out of, out of a situation they were in. In Exodus 34 verse 20, God instructs Israel um, never to appear before him empty-handed. 
So we have to take this mindset even when we, when we even come to church. Let's talk about this, bring it home. Even when we come to church, that when we are coming or even coming amongst believers, period, that we must always be in a position to give. When we come before the Lord, we must never come before him empty handed as he instructed the Israelites in Exodus 34. In Psalm 96, verse 8, he says, bring an offering and enter into his courts. We should never come to the house of the Lord empty handed. But you can. But remember that God does not need your tips. Understand this. Yes, we're called to give, but don't give grudgingly. Don't, when the offering, you know, speaking of the offering, when the offering plate comes around or when you come to reach for that, you know, the smallest amount that you can give just because you need to give. That's, God doesn't need your tips. Don't get it twisted. God calls us to give, but God doesn't need your money. But God calls us to be cheerful givers. Um, one illustration calls, calls us to be a hilarious giver. So when you give, you should give an offering that honors God. And we know what honors God and we know what it doesn't. And I'm not saying there's a certain number amount, but you know based off of what you have. Just Because we can knock that, that, that thought out when Jesus was with the disciples in the temple and when you know, the, the great rich man would drop his silver coins and the, young, and the old woman came and dropped two copper coins and he asked the disciples who gave more and he told them that it was the woman that gave more because she gave out of her lack rather than them giving out their abundance. So... It's not about the amount. We're not talking about a numerical amount, but you know what honors God. And so when we give, we should give a gift that honors God. You know, when, you, when birthdays come around and Christmas comes around, you're not just going to give somebody, especially somebody that you love, just any old gift. You're not going to go to the 99 cent store and just pick up any, you know, little thing and just give it to them. But you understand the value of the person you're giving to and you give to them based off that value. So if you're talking about man who is fallible, man who has probably has done you wrong, a person who has probably, you know, uh, 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 cheated you or, 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 or made you upset at one point, how much more so when we give shall we think of the value of the God that we're giving to so we, we are supposed to be always be in a position of giving. We must remember that giving is worship. If we cannot worship as we give, we should not give at all. We should not give at all. So with, with us, so Christ endured our, our poverty and that we might share his abundance. Here's a caution real quick before I move to the next point. It says, Let's not get caught up in his hand that we miss his heart. And what really matters, poverty is a curse. God's provision is abundance. But do not focus merely on the material realm, because when you die, that will be the end of it. So those whose priorities are right, God offers greater and more enduring riches. So even as he gives us abundance, let's make sure our focus is right. So for, um, number seven, we'll shoot through these last three so that we can go. Um, Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Isaiah 53 verse 5. Jesus bore our shame that we might endure, that we might share in his glory. 53 verse 5. Oh, that's the right one. Yeah. Okay, so by his stripes we are healed. So earlier we 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 addressed this in, in, in the idea of the physical hurt, but Christ also died on the cross to deal with our, our emotional hurts. Emotions are not something that God just overlooks, deal with it, you're human. Get over it and let's, let's do what we got to do. But God knows how he built us, knows that we have emotions, and with emotions, know that we have emotional issues. So one of the major things that, that people deal with on a whole is shame. A lot of us deal with shame. We deal with shame for different reasons. We deal with shame sometimes because of what we've done before, shame because sometimes of what we've done before we came to Christ, and shame because 
you know, uh, maybe sometimes it may be something physical, whatever the case may be. But Jesus came to deal with our shame so that we may share with what is the opposite of shame, which is glory. While this verse, like I said, while this verse applies to physical, it also applies to emotional. On a Christ, on a cross, Jesus suffered the ultimate shame. Shame is one of the most common emotional problems amongst believers. And then on top of it, we are ashamed that we have shame. You with me? So shame becomes a prison because we have shame, and then we're ashamed that we're dealing with shame. And I, you know, I'm I'm sure we we all have dealt or are dealing with this this issue. But Christ came to 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 die for that. Hebrews two verse ten. Hebrews two verse ten. Hebrews two verse ten reads. I get the right page. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make, make the founder of the salvation perfect through suffering. So through his suffering, he, he made perfect uh, um, his salvation so that he can bring many sons and many daughters um, to glory. The reason why sons, just a little disclaimer, sons, because it embodies in, in, in old times, the sons were the ones that inherited from, from the father. So when it says sons, not necessarily just saying males, just ladies, all right? So y'all, y'all in salvation too, all right? But um, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of the salvation perfect through suffering. So suffering made salvation perfect so that he could bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Shoot over to chapter 12. 12 verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the, at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ's mind focused on the joy to set before him, endured shame for us on the cross. So he dealt with shame. The shame that we are dealing with, he dealt with it already on the cross. So we can submit these things. These things that he's exchanging, the reason why we're highlighting is so that we can now submit those things to him because it's already been dealt with. There was no form of death more shameful than crucifixion. It was the lowest form of punishment for the most debased criminals. They took all of Jesus' clothing away from him, and he hung naked before the eyes of the people. Passerbys mocked him. What he endured is summed up in one word, shame. Christ endured the shame because he knew that through it, he could bring us to glory. Back to 53 in verse 3, you see this depicted when, he, when Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus dealt with shame on the cross. So that now we can submit that shame to him and he brings us to glory through, our, through his salvation. Isaiah 69 is a messianic, um, so, I'm sorry, Psalm 69 is a, is, uh, a messianic uh, psalm, meaning that I don't know if you ever read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is another one where it is a, a prophetic psalm of what Christ comes. So Psalm 22 is the one where David writes the psalm, but David writes, you know, uh, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? All the things that Christ says when he's on the cross. So Psalm 69 is another psalm, and we're going to run through there real quick, look at a couple verses um, and see uh, how the shame affected Christ. Psalm 69. So verse 1 and 2, 
You see here, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire for where there is no foothold. Where I have come into deep, into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So you see here, in, in the, prophetically speaking, Christ is sinking in the filth of our sin. He's sinking in the filth of our sin. And so now these next verses that we read, we'll, I'll show you the parallel in, um, in, in, uh, in the New Testament. It says in verse 4, it says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. More in numbers than the, head of my he- the, the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. If you turn to John 15, verse 25, Jesus repeats, re- repeats this and speaking about himself. 15, verse 25 says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. He's speaking to uh, the disciples about the hatred of the world. But the word, word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated Christ without any reason. They hated him. People that had no issue, no reason to hate him, hated him without reason. And the f- prophecy that was in Psalm 69 was fulfilled through that. Um, going back to Psalm, we're going to be flipping back and forth. Psalm 69, back to there, verse 8. It says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's son. You see in Mark 3, 21, for the sake of time, I'll just uh, paraphrase it. Mark 3, verse 21, and John 7, verse 3 and 5, you see that Jesus' own people, where he says, you know, even a... Uh, um, a, a prophet is not at home, not, is less at home where he's from, pretty much a paraphrasing. That even his own people and his own family rejected him. When Jesus went to go minister in this town where he grew up in, they looked at him and said, wasn't this guy the son of the carpenter? Who is this guy now that he comes in here with, with such authority? And so you see that he was rejected by his own people and also his family. In verse 9, it says in, in Psalm 69, it says, for zeal for your for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. And we saw that in play in John John chapter two, where Jesus is in the temple and they're they're uh, they're doing the trades and they're selling. And he goes and he, you know that's when he makes the whip and whips grown men, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible. But um, he says that the zeal of his father's house has overtaken him. So you see that the 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 um. The, the, the parallel of Christ fulfilling the prophecy in the Psalm 69. And lastly, verse 21 in Psalm, 16, 16, uh, Psalm 69. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. On the cross, when Jesus said that he thirsts, they put a sponge and sour wine for him to drink from. And so we see here that it, 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 was, it was a parallel from the Psalm 69 was a prophetic psalm of what Jesus had to endure when he came to this earth. Matthew 27, verse 35, where we're talking about the, the, uh, the, the, the guards casting lots and separating his clothes as Jesus is hanging on the cross fully naked. You know, we see the pictures with the loincloth. and not as great. It's clean so that the kids could, could see the pictures. But in reality, he had nothing on. They had stripped him naked. Naked with his scars, naked with his bruises and his sores from the beating that he has endured for the last 24 hours, bloody to the point where he has no human resemblance. If that's not shameful, I don't know what is. Common causes, so he takes on the shame, he takes on the shame for that we, so that we may share his glory. In our lives, common causes for shame are humiliating experiences from the past, Memories we carry before we knew the Lord, and one of the most common these days, and, and I was reading this book and it brought up this topic, and I thought about whether or not I should bring it up, but I think it's a real issue, and I think that it was very unique that they brought it up, and it's, it's very uh, um, 
prevalent in our in our in our time now. But one of the a lot of the common one of the most common these days is sexual molestation. Um, statistics say that one in four girls and one in five boys be experience sexual molestation before 12 years old. You know, I've come to know some friends, I've come to know some people, and they have shared with me um, after some time some of the experiences they had. And, you know, it's one of those hard topics, but it's something that's real. And I've seen the effects of that. You know, you grow up feeling shameful. You grow up feeling like you're not worth anything. Your, your value has already been decreased even at a young age. Uh, we, pray, we pray, of course, we pray that that one in four girls and that one in five boys and none of our, our, our children or future children here or anybody, we pray that. Um, but this is a real issue and it causes shame. But even that, Christ dealt with on the cross. At some point, you may counsel someone who has been through it, or you may even be even here and, and be, the, be one that has gone through it. But remember that Jesus has endured even that shame so he can bring you to glory. It's amazing that even something as, as, as deep and as hurtful as that, Christ in his all-knowing power dealt with that on the cross. So we can submit that to him, even that which is close to our heart, something that a lot of people don't even share with anybody else, that we can submit that to Christ because he's dealt with the shame so he can bring us to glory. Number eight, there's two more and that's it, two more and that's it. Jesus endured our rejection that we might enjoy his acceptance. I think it was two weeks ago uh, last week. Um, PD made, uh, said a quote, and I posted it up on, um, on, on Facebook, that Jesus was abandoned so that we can be embraced. Jesus endured our rejection that we might enjoy his acceptance. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 3, which we just read, it deals with that. 53, verse 3 says, For he was despised and rejected by men. A lot of us deal with the rejection in our lives. Rejection can be described as a sense of being unwanted and unloved. It can be explained in this way. You are always on the outside looking in. Other people get in, but somehow you never do. But how great is it to know that in 1 John 4, 19, it says that we love God because he first loved us. So way before we accepted God, God has already accepted us. Because of the blood on the cross that he dealt with rejection so that we, can, we might enjoy his acceptance. Rejection is very prevalent in today's culture for a number of reasons. Uh, one is the breakdown of family relationships. A lot of times, um, when you know, even those who have had newborn babies, babies, they, you know, and congratulations, we see Cleavon here. Uh, uh, but babies, they are, they, they look for love. It's not just, you know, feed them and go, but they want to cuddle. They want to be held. They want to be loved. They want to be nurtured. And so... With the breakdown of family relationships, it is an attack at that. You know, and even um, I was reading in, in this book that I was reading as I was preparing, it brings even, even goes as far as talking about the, 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 the love of a father. You know, we, we know we're dealing with something that's not a secret, but we're dealing with the breakdown, especially in, in the case of the father not being in the home. And so that there is something unique about the love of a father to a child, that a child can be loved by the mother, not knocking down the love of a mother, but it's something about being in your father's arms that you know that you are protected and you are okay. No matter what's going on around, when you run to your dad and your dad holds you, you know, as, especially as a child, that you are okay. That you, that every, no matter what's going on in your life, that you are safe in his arms. And so because that has been attacked and because that has been broken down, 
we now deal with the sense of rejection because we don't really feel a, 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 the acceptance. Another, another cause, another reason is rejection before birth. Sometimes people may, be pre may have a child on their way and they have already rejected the child before the child has even been born. Whether it's because of the circumstances that the child is being born into and they feel like this is the child is going to be more of a burden and a blessing, whatever it is. But that affects the child. Like, whether we know it or not, that affects the child. Whether you're saying it face to face the child, but the, the spirit of rejection is something that's real. Another one is the break of a marriages. When you invested in, in a marriage or even, even as far as a relationship before marriage and, and you deal with the, the, re, the, the rejection in that case, that can be something that uh, brings on that feeling of rejection and also physical appearance. Some of us feel as though because of the way we look, the way our body is, the way our face looks, the way our features are, that we, ha we feel a sense of rejection instead of acceptance. But Christ came to deal with that. Isaiah 53 verse 3, we just saw that, that he, was, um, he, he was rejected. John 1 verse 11 um, even expounds on that. John 1 verse 11 reads that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So his own people rejected him. It's amazing. Not even just his own people, meaning the people that he grew up in, but Christ, who by whom all things were created, the ones that he created rejected him. His creations turned around and said to the creator, you're not good enough for me. That's what sin, that's part of what sin does. We look to the one who created and says, you're not good enough. I'm going to look to this other creation you made in order to satisfy me. So he knows what rejection is. Psalm 60, going back to that Psalm 69, verse 8. It says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. So again, this being the prophecy for the Messiah, that he has become a stranger amongst his brothers and alien to my mother's sons. So meaning Christ dealt with rejection when he came to this earth. When we're dealing with our own rejection, we must remember that Jesus dealt with it too. But to be rejected by man is one thing, but the supreme rejection that Christ dealt with was by his father on the cross. On the cross, Jesus cries out, let's, let's run to Matthew 27 verse 45 uh, to 50. I just want to walk through this real quick. I just want to actually show you this. Matthew 27, verse 40, starting at verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over all the land until the ninth hour. About the, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani. I can't even read the Hebrew. But it says, but it means that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now I've been taught, I've heard, I would say that, I've heard that it was just a feeling of, of being forsaken. But truthfully, when Christ took on our sin, as we talked about in point number three, that he took on our sin, God had to deal with them how he deals with sin and that he rejects sin. So Christ was being forsaken by the Father. And so we're talking about the Son of God who is sinless, who is blameless, who has never experienced rejection from the Father before in his, in, in his, in his whole life. He is the one who is most accepted. He is the one who is most pleasing to the Father. He has never felt an absence of the Father. And now he is in his most uh, horrible moment of his life. And he's crying out to the Father that he has known so well. And he is being rejected. 
We can be rejected by a friend. We can be rejected by a job. We can be rejected by a relationship. But it is nothing in comparison to being rejected by God. But he was rejected. You know, the scripture says, and I think it was Deuteronomy, that he shall never leave nor forsake us. Understand this. The only reason why he, can never, he will never leave nor forsake us is because he left and forsake Christ on the cross. Sin had to be dealt with. So the only reason why he, has, he promises never to leave nor forsake us is because he already left and forsook Christ on the cross for us. He was rejected so that we can be accepted. Jesus was offered, I'm sorry. Jesus, yeah, Jesus was offered, as we, as we read uh, furthermore, um, and some of the bystanders, verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it thought that he was calling out to Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So understand this. So he was offered to drink twice. The first time he was offered wine and myrrh, he rejected it. Now, myrrh was a painkiller. Myrrh would have at least alleviated his pain. He rejected that which would alleviate his pain. And sour wine is what keeps him conscious. So Jesus not so allowed, made sure that he was awake and conscious to endure all of the rejection. Are y'all with me? He had a chance to take myrrh, the Tylenol, the Advil in order to alleviate the pain, the Novocaine, to deal with the pain as he's on the cross. But he chose to reject that, to take on the pain, to take on the rejection. And not only that, but to drink of the sour wine so he's conscious of the rejection he's experiencing on the cross. If that's not love, I don't know what is. You have a chance to get knocked out before you die. You have a chance to not deal with the emotional pain that you're going through because your father, you're crying out to him. He's not answering you. But you choose by your sovereign choice. Give me the very thing that I will make me remain awake to endure this rejection because there are people that I'm dying for that need to be accepted. That is love. He had a way out. He chose not to take it because of us. He loves us enough to be rejected before the father for nothing he did, but everything we did so that we can be accepted with them. That's love. So outside of the physical pain, Jesus suffered from a broken heart. Again, going back to that Psalm 69. Excuse me. Sorry, I got, I got a little excited. It's just... The, the fact that he had a choice and he chose not to. Psalm 69, verse 20 and 21 says, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So Jesus not only suffered from the physical beating, but he suffered from a broken heart. A broken heart for us. And in Matthew 27, verse 51, after in 50, you see, he says he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Immediately, immediately, immediately after the next verse, it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And pay attention to this, from the top to the bottom. 
immediately after he was rejected, immediately after he yielded his spirit, immediately after this, we see the acceptance of God for man. Because that veil was a very veil that separated the holy of holies from us. So in the temple, the veil was there because only those who had, who had been cleansed, which was the priests of the temple, which had been cleansed, can enter the holy of holies to provide the sacrifice. So now, because the one who has been the sacrifice once and for all has now yielded up his spirit, has been rejected, now God shows his acceptance, not from the bottom up that we can say that somebody came with a scissors and cut it up, but you see that the number one, that it was done by God and it was chosen to be done by God and that acceptance is from God to us. That God is saying that now because I've reject, rejected my son, I now open my doors to accept you in, in his place. Isn't that a, that's a, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that in, in, in the writing that it wasn't like a whole chapter later that we see the curtain, but 50 he yielded up his spirit, 51 you see the curtain ripped. That's amazing that he accepted us because he, out, of, out of Christ uh, becoming rejected for us. Understand that it was God's choice, not ours. Because of his choice, we are able to be holy and without blame before him. If you read Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 6, and we are accepted by him. The literal uh, translation in Ephesians, I think Ephesians 1 and 6 it says uh, that we are accepted, but the literal translation in the Greek says that we are highly favored. So not only are we accepted, but we are highly favored by God. Last point, and I promise you I'm going to let you go. Uh, number nine, our old man. This is, now, we talked about in the first eight what God, Christ has done for us on the cross, but this last one is different as it does, what it does in us. Our old man died in Jesus that the new man might live in us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says that um, for those who are in Christ are a new creature, new creation, the old man has passed away. The old man, as, as is, is to be understood, is the sinful nature we have inherited by our descent from Adam. Some people may call it the old Adam, which is legitimate. Adam never had any children until he was a re rebel. Every descendant of Adam, therefore, is born with a rebel within. It does not matter how clever you are or how young or how old. There is a rebel inside every descendant of Adam. Most of us, if we're real, we can, we can testify to that. There is something in us that is rebellious at nature. But the gospel deals with the roots. I mentioned this earlier, that uh, um, uh, John, John the Baptist says that the axe is hitting at the roots in Matthew 3, verse 10. Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 6. Just go there. Isaiah 53. Verse 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So that's the issue. We want to go our own way. That is the root. That is the root at which the Acts, which is the gospel, is hitting at. Our rebellious nature. The message of mercy. Oh, but before I move on, I'm moving too fast. But the thing is, the old man, the way that God deals with the old man, he doesn't reform the old man. He doesn't change the old man. He doesn't teach the old man how to, be, how, to, how, how to be better. God executes the old man. That's God's dealing with the old man, is that he executes the rebel. Those who are rebellious against God, death is their wages. But how many know that we are blessed to receive a new man so that we crucify the old man and we live in the new man? The message of mercy is that the execution occurred on the cross. God dealt with the execution on the cross. Romans 6, verse 6 to 7. 
promise you we're almost done. I promise you. I promise you. No lie. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we, might, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So our old man is crucified so that we are no longer slaves of sin. And our new man, our, which, is, which in, in uh, 1 Peter, I believe, it talks about that it is brought by incorruptible seed. Now, incorruptible seed is the word of God. It, no, it, it, it is not one that sins. Our new man cannot sin. So now the next question is, okay, so if you're telling me our old man is crucified and we have a new man, you're saying that the new man doesn't sin, how do, why do we still have a tendency to sin? Because the problem is now we choose who we, let to have, who we allow to have control. Although the old man was crucified, and, and, and you know me in analogies, sometimes we like to take the nails off and let them come down and have a little fun. And that's the problem. That's where our issue is. That's where the tendency. Because John, in, in, in uh, 1 John, I believe, has a verse. says those, um, the sons of God, um, they, uh, pretty much in paraphrasing that, they do not sin. And so you read, you read these, these verses like, okay, you're telling me that those who sin are not of God. Okay, so how are you telling me this when I know that I have a tendency to sin? Because I can't be perfect. But the problem is what he's saying is that the new man knows sin. When we, when we allow the old man to take control, and the old man is, is equivalent to the flesh, Allow the, the desires of the flesh to be taken over. This is one of the reasons why we fast. We starve the old man. We, we allow the old man to weak as we strengthen up the new man. So that way when those issues come and we come to those fork in the roads, the new man is stronger than the old man and, and directs our paths. Here's the difference, and this is my last point in the application we're, we're out. A person who has never been born again cannot help sinning because his very nature causes him to sin. But a person who has been born again has an option. If we allow the new nature to remain in control, we do not sin. If we allow the old nature to reassert itself, we sin. So that's where the issue between the spirit and the flesh, I believe in the book of Galatians where, where Paul unpacks this, that the spirit and the flesh are always at odds. And so it's in our decision on who we're going to allow to drive the car. The new man, which knows no sin, or the old man, which only sins. So, and even in those cases, and this is, this is, I guess, where I'll wrap it all around, but even in those cases where we fail and we allow the old man to, to take control, remember that Jesus, the, number, the first point, that Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. So he gives us forgiveness. So even the dealing with the exchanges even interlock to each other because even when we mess up on one, there's something that he already paid for that's going to cover that one. Our application, three. Number one, three applications to leave with is number one, we need to meditate on the importance of what occurred on the cross. We need to meditate on the importance of what occurred on the cross. We need never, never to lose sight on that. Number two, we need to confess these nine exchanges that occurred on the cross. Real quick to just go through them as we close is Jesus was, Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus endured our rejection that we might enjoy his acceptance. And lastly, our old man died in Jesus that the new man might live in us. So we need to confess these nine exchanges that occurred on the cross and, be, and know that they have already been dealt with and all we need to do is submit them to the work that's already been done in light of them. And lastly, number three, we are to live these truths out, 
knowing that what Christ did for us on the cross was once and for all. It's dealt with. It's over. It's a done deal. No other sacrifice needs to be made. Nothing is catches God by surprise. When it comes up, submit it to what's already been done in light of it. Every head bowed. Lord, we thank you. We honor you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the sacrifice on the cross that took our place and gave us all that we don't deserve. We thank you, Lord, that Christ took on the wages of our sin, which was death, and gave us the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we thank you that we even learned um, a couple weeks ago that eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. So thank you, Lord, that we are reconciled to you to be able to know you because of what was done on the cross. Let us remember these exchanges. Let us remember what we have in the cross, what we, are, what we have attained through Christ on the cross, and let us live them out. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen.